Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We are continuing our series on special texts from the ancient Near East. And in this episode, we're talking about the Amarna letters, the correspondence between Egypt and the city-states of Canaan and other places. So uh, these are really important letters, and uh, I hope you enjoy the discussion around them by Mary and Chris. And we appreciate all of you listening. Please share the word or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We really appreciate that. Special thanks to Ed Hatke for producing this show. He also produces our other podcast, On Script. And Ed, we really appreciate all the time and work that you put into this. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back on Script, uh, Biblical World podcast listeners. Uh, today, I am joined by my co-host, Mary Buck, and we are going to continue our series about great texts from the ancient Near East associated with the uh, Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament. I think we still need to come up with some catchier name than that. Yeah, what is the name? I actually had forgotten since our last round. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, we're, 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 what we're doing with this series is to try and provide some comparative material from um, different texts, different regions, different cultures that um, in some way can provide background to uh, the biblical world. And this time we've chosen uh, a fairly large group of texts, the texts that have um, come known known as the Amarna Correspondence. Uh, The Amarna Correspondence um, relate to the um, New Kingdom Egypt. Uh, the Egyptian New Kingdom is related to the 18th and 19th and 20th dynasties. Um, we're talking about something like 1550 BC to about uh, 1100 BC, depending on when you uh, divide it up, uh, because the, the, the heyday of it is the, the 18th and the 19th uh, dynasty. And where our texts fall, the Amarna Correspondence, is within the, the so-called 18th dynasty. And we can actually date it with pretty, pretty clear precision to the middle part of the 14th century BC. That would be in the 1300s or so during the uh, reign of Amenhotep III, but especially Amenhotep IV, who would become known as Akhenaten. Um, Woo! Yep, and Aka- he's like my favorite. He's so this good. is so great. This is why it's so great. Okay. Yeah, this he's he's very interesting character um, for a number of reasons, uh, some of which we won't necessarily get into. But a key aspect of his name is that Aten element. Um, now, before we get into that, we should also say where Amarna is. Amarna um, is for for a brief period of time becomes the capital of, uh, of New Kingdom Egypt. In different periods, the capital was located at, uh, at Thebes, uh, which is in Upper Egypt, 
And at other times, it was located in Lower Egypt at, uh, at Memphis or, or P. Ramses and, and other locations. But for a, And just for clarity, Upper and Lower is not what you think. So really, Upper Thebes, South, Lower is in the North Memphis. Exactly. I just want to add that in. It's always confusing, man. It's just the opposite of what you think. It is, it is very confusing. Um, and I've been working on that with my, with my kids. And they seem to have gotten it. Uh, but it can be a source of confusion. Um, and one of the great things about Amarna is it was only occupied during this, uh, the, during this one period, during the, the, the 14th century, what we call the Amarna Age. Now, because of the fact that it was only occupied during this period, we can, we can well date the palaces, the tombs, uh, and most importantly, the, uh, the inscriptions the archive that was, uh, that was found at Amarna is well dated uh, to the 14th century um, BC. Now, within Amarna, and again, the ancient name is, um, is Akhenaten, much like the name, of, uh, much like the name of, of the pharaoh, that we have, a, um, a, again, a particular city with a specific time. Now, anytime you have that in archaeology where you have text dated to a specific period, it is very helpful for, um, for, for archaeology and for reconstructing history. Now, in terms of the, um, in terms of the archive, it was found um, in the 19th century, and there's various stories about how it was um, uncovered. Um, it's kind of like the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in that way, where you have kind of the legendary story of, in the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, a Bedouin shepherd going and, and looking for uh, his sheep in a cave and throwing a rock and hearing breaking sound. That's at least, you know, the, how the story goes. Um, but in general, most people, as far as the story, as, as far as the story works, is it seems like we have local, um, local peasants who are collecting soil from Tel El Amarna and then using it uh, in their fields, which is a, a well-known phenomenon because tells have uh, great mineral resources in the, uh, as a result of human activity. And in the process of collecting soil, um, which is mostly you know, degraded mud brick, they came across these uh, tablets, which had ancient uh, writing on them. Um, and they eventually sold them to, uh, to Europeans. And eventually, many of these were found in forming the collection that we call the Amarna Archive. Uh, and we're going to look at a few of these texts today. Uh, um, Mary has selected a few that we'll, that we'll go through. What, what, what language are the Amarna archive, the Amarna text written in, Mary? Oh, man. Good question, Chris. And really fast to their discovery. Um, it, we talked about it on the last text we, we spoke about, um, the, the Moabite stone or the Meshach Stele. Um, <clears throat> at the end of the 1800s, you have this explosion of interest in the ancient Near East as more and more sites are yielding finds. And so locals are they're finding them, they're selling them to antiquities dealers, things like that. So that's what's happening here. They were discovered. Amarna, um, very much like the site of Agarit, um, the tablets are quite close to the top. It wasn't built upon because it was a one period site. And we'll talk about that. Um, the tablets are close to the top. They're found early on in the 1800s. They're on the black market. And so, um, they weren't, um, 
found as a single stash exactly. Um, like, Hey, we have a stash and we've cataloged all of them, but they, they were kind of a few were sold here and a few were found here and, and one, one person found them here and then were kind of compiled over time. So I think it's just interesting in terms of how we find history. Um, and that this has a little bit of a sort of a muddied, <laughs> muddied history. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would, I would say this, when we think about that, like there are many tablets that make their way in the antiquities market to various places. Um, even until today, we see this as a major problem in Syria, Iraq. Uh, we can think back to ISIS and the ongoing issues that you can track in the news with uh, the Museum of the Bible and things being repeat, repatriated to different countries as a result of uh, illicit excavations and, and trading. But one of the good things about um, Amarna is that even though they weren't um, necessarily excavated in uh, scientific excavations, they all date to the same time period. So that limits the the issues with context, uh, and at least in terms of chronology. They're all from, again, roughly the same time frame, and they're all originate from the same place. Um, and then related to that, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, there actually have been uh, some, some very interesting studies done uh, using petrography that is looking at the... Did you make that word up? No, I didn't. Come on. It's a real <laughs> thing. Um, looking at the, the, the grit in the clay itself, showing where um, many of these tablets were, uh, were, were actually written in Canaan. Uh, and so uh, particularly those that are found today in the modern state of Israel, such as places like Gezer and Jerusalem and others, uh, these have been tested and, and clearly demonstrate that they were... Um, that they were written using clay from these vicinities. No, it's so helpful. Um, <clears throat> and I think, and thanks for making that word up. I think it's really helpful addition. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, no, I, so basically over the course of kind of 30, 40 years at the end of 1800s, um, really like 1880s into the early 1900s, um, a number of texts are found. And, and in total, there are 382 documents. So um, <clears throat> the vast majority of these are letters. So 350 of them are letters. Um, and the other ones are other different types of documents. So we have, um, there, I was going to like go into them, but you have a couple, you have a couple, um, things that indicate mythology from the time period and things like that, things like that. But the most important piece are the letters, because that's really what gives us kind of a historical understanding of the late bronze age. And that's why this is just such this find at Amarna was so important to actually understanding what's going on in the 1300s in the ancient Near East. Um, what's cool about them is you have, um, letters from different parties and that's why we'll talk about the language. I think it's helpful to talk about the source of the letters. So you have 45 of the letters are from great kings of the ancient Near East to one another. And we've, we mentioned this in briefly a couple times on, on other podcasts, but um, in the, in the late bronze age, you have a series of great kingdoms and they referred to each other as kind of calling each other brothers. Um, so you have, in Mesopotamia, you have Elam, the Kassites, the Assyrians. Um, up in Anatolia, you have the Hittites. Over on Cyprus, you have Alashia. Um, and then you have the New Kingdom, Egypt. Oh, and, and also up in um, in uh, Anatolia, you have Arzawa. You actually have an Arzawa le letter, which is important. Um, and then you have the New Kingdom, Egypt, which spans up into the um, Southern Levant. And um, that is kind of the control of Egypt, but also within Egypt, you have smaller city-states that are vassals of the great kings. And so um, a few of those vassals are the Canaanite vassals in the Sun of Levant. And then you also have empires like Ugarit, which kind of 
waffles between being a great king and a vassal and, but primarily a vassal either to Egypt or to the Hittites. Um, so you have 45 letters, um, between these great Kings, and then you have sort of the sense in the letters of kind of this, um, model of reciprocity is what it's called as they exchange items, as they write to each other, they have international relations, that kind of thing. Um, but the vast majority of the letters are actually written from Egyptian vassals in Canaan to Egypt. And they are kind of dealing with the administration from Egypt. They're complaining about their neighbors. They're asking for resources. They're doing a lot of things. So, um, two different things, the letters that are written between the great Kings, those are written in a form of, in a later form of Akkadian. So, um, in Neo-Babylonian and, and that was kind of the lingua franca at the time. Um, that said, the letters from the Canaanite vassals to Egypt are written in this sort of, uh, um, a mixed form. It's a mixed dialect. Um, it's written in the scripts of Akkadian or Neo-Babylonian, but it's using a lot of what's called a Marna Canaanite. So it falls in the, the sphere of um, Northwest Semitic. And so Northwest Semitic languages are like Hebrew, Aramaic, things like that. Um, Hebrew and Aramaic, they're called Canaanite languages. They're part of the Canaanite family. And um, that the earliest known Canaanite dialect is Amarna Canaanite. And so it's very important for us as scholars to understand where did this language originate? What did it sound like? What are they borrowing? Um, how did it progress? How did the languages divide over time? And that's why these are just uh, tremendous um resource for linguists to understand what's going on. They're also important history, you know, as well, but linguistics, very, very important in terms of the development of the Semitic languages. Um, I'm sure I missed something in there, Chris. Add, add to no, this. No, I, I, I think that you covered it uh, quite well. And I would just simply add that, you know, some of the names of, of, of scholars, and you can, you can surely add more to this than I can, but uh, Anson Rainey, um, my, who I studied with when I was you studied with him, right? Yeah, yeah. not not That's so cool. much in in terms of um, Amarna and um, you know in terms of linguistics, it's more historical geography. But he was uh, one of the premier scholars in the world. Um, he before his death uh, was nearing the final publication of uh, a reanalysis of all of the uh, the tablets which are scattered in the uh, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo and also in Berlin and some other, and a few other places where he was re-examining it and, and dealing with not only the translations, but in earlier parts of his career, dealing with precisely what you just mentioned, getting at what this language, um, you know, Samarna Canaanite actually would have, uh, actually would have looked like. And so uh, I would completely concur uh, with, with your points. And then also just from a, um, from a history standpoint and from a geographical standpoint, there are a number of fascinating uh, details that, that we can glean much more than we could talk about in a podcast episode uh, from, these, uh, from these letters. But one thing is really important. Uh, I'll say two things that are really important to, to remember when we talk about the Amarna letters is it's the one side of a conversation. We only have, uh, we only have what the uh, local Canaanites or whatever the, the, the letter is from, whether it was one of the great kings or uh, one of the, let's call them the cats and the mice. You know, the great kings are the, the, the brothers of the Egyptians in terms of the, the great kings, but the, the mice or these small city-states, uh, we only have what they're saying. So we don't have Akhenaten's response or, um, you know, what, what his, what his uh, diplomats would have, would have said. Uh, the other thing about it, um, in terms of a, a kind of an overarching view, 
is we don't have, even though we have enormous amount of, of texts from Egypt, we don't have corresponding texts for other parts of the Late Bronze Age. Um, we don't have stuff from the 15th century. We don't have stuff from the 13th century. Uh, we don't even have stuff from the beginning of the 14th or the end of the, 12th, the 14th. We just have something for uh, several decades in the middle of the, of the 14th century that help us understand the entirety of the Late Bronze Age and then fill out with these bigger inscriptions from, we might call them New Kingdom Egyptian royal inscriptions, which are um, written by the Egyptians themselves, um, but to glorify themselves. Whereas in this case, we can understand at the, the base level differing views on local politics between such characters as Labayu of Shechem um, or, or the kings of Gezer and Megiddo and, and so on that allow us insights that are really unparalleled uh, during this period, or really uh, you could even say any period in, in the Late Bronze and, and Iron Age um, that is so important for us because we're trying to understand this period as the um, what's happening in the land of Canaan during the time period associated with um, just in general the biblical uh, the biblical um, arrival of the Israelites and, and, and as they eventually develop into a kingdom. So I, I think those are just two important uh, elements. And with that, I think we're going to turn over to actually reading some of the texts and commenting on elements within them. Oh man, we're jumping right in. I thought we were going to talk about Akhenaten. Just well, let's because. talk about Akhenaten. Yeah, let's talk about Akhenaten first. Go ahead. Because Amarna is just the coolest site. Okay, so let me frame it this way. Okay. When you go to the Cairo museum, which all of you should, because it's so incredible. And I think they just opened the new one. Um, I had, got, I found well, it yeah. has that, it been open? <laughs> well, I mean, all the different times they said they're going to open. It's hard to say. Um, <laughs> it's hard to say they, they did move the mummies to a different museum. Oh. Uh, and that was a really cool the processional. Sweet, man. They are, but I'm not sure if they've actually, I think they've partly opened it, but uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I've heard um, conflicting reviews on that. Um, actually, I I work with someone from Egypt, and I was asking him, and he was like, "Yeah, I think it might be open." And that was that was about as much as I could get. Um, anyway, um, so when all of you go to Cairo, the Cairo Museum, <clears throat> you uh, are kind of you see a lot of materials. I mean, they're, they are not short on archeological uh, finds and you see a very classic pattern of, of the way the pharaohs were depicted, right? Very strong square features. And then you go to, now I don't know, in the new museum and in the old museum, you go into this room that everything looks like alien life forms. And that is the Akhenaten room. And it's so distinct. So um, Akhenaten, he takes this, and I and I think most scholars would say it was a political, um, just error. I don't know what the what, what it's just a terrible decision. Um, but he basically kind of uh, goes against the pattern that had been set in Egypt for for by that point a thousand years, um, and he says, "Look, we're not going to worship the pantheon anymore. We're going to focus on one deity, and that's the Aten, and the Aten is the sun disk, literally the disk itself." Um, and he to do this, he he moves the capital of the New Kingdom of Egypt away from Thebes. He moves it to a one period site, meaning it was only established in the this period and it only lasted during this period um, called Amarna and there's lots of speculation about why Amarna but it's it's most likely because there's a two kind of hills uh, that allow for the sun disk to be portrayed very clearly there and it would have been for worship of the Aten. Um, he establishes this site 
he kind of does forced worship of the Aten. Um, and a lot goes along with that. He um, establishes a very new art artistic style. Um, so he has very effeminate features. Um, and his, his wife, Nefertiti, obviously the, her bust is very, um, the bust of her head is very famous. Um, you can see a replica there. Um, anyway, so it just, is a very distinct time period and it's one, I mean, you get kind of, okay, well, I can't remember the king. Yeah, but everybody knows Akhenaten. Um, it's kind of, now he's not, totally monotheistic, but really the kind of the closest you're going to get to monotheism in Egypt. Um, but we'd love to get your, your archeological perspective on Amarna, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I would just add a, a couple of, a couple of things. I, I completely agree. And this question of monotheism is, is really, I mean, interesting. I mean, I think it can be overstated. I mean, you can read a bunch of different, um, both archeologists and historians when they talk about uh, Akhenaten and this um, this religious uh, reform that definitely happened, and what exactly it represents was it heartfelt? Uh, was it simply just a, a political um, uh, maneuver or something in between? And its relationships, if any, with um, with what happens with the Israelites. Now, obviously, this gets into the question of before or after. You know, if you hold to a 15th century view. This would be subsequent to uh, Moses. If you hold to a 13th century view, it would be just before. And if you want to get into uh, some of those questions, I would recommend. Oh, we should. We oh well, should. well, I, I'd recommend. <laughs> I'd recommend the uh, the five views of the Exodus series, which we talked a lot about those different those different things. But it it it, it's, it seems uh, close enough in time that. Too close in time to be a coincidence. I mean that there's something going on there in terms of this idea of of semi monotheism at least. Now I think one thing we should make mention of is that w with regards to Akhenaten, that they go from worshiping the sun to worshiping the sun. Um, in other words, the the main the main deity is Amun or Amun Ra, and you can go into virtually every tomb you want to in the Valley of the Kings, and you can read about Amun Ra. Uh, and his uh, and his night journey, as well as his day journey, and many things in between. And you, so you have a very well established religion going back hundreds uh, and even approaching thousand years by that by that point. And so by shifting it over to um, the, uh, a lesser deity and a lesser expression of 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 the sun was a was a major uh, a major shift that had colossal um, ramifications, and it was ultimately rejected. Um, we know that it was rejected. We know that his uh, famous son, uh, who was not that great of a, uh, of a, a king himself, King Tutankhamun, or King Tut, um, rejected this and went back to um, uh, the, the main pantheon, which was head, headed by Amun-Ra. Um, and we know a lot about him, of course, because of the discovery of his uh, the discovery of his tomb. I would just add uh, a couple of things. One really interesting thing that's been brought out um, recently is that it's in the 18th uh, dynasty, and specifically with um, with Akhenaten, that we start to see some of the closest parallels with what we're going to have de described in uh, the book of Exodus with the uh, furniture in the tabernacle, particularly the Ark of the Covenant. Um, David Falk, in his recent book on the Ark of the Covenant, has drawn a number of parallels uh, between um, the Egyptian furniture that we have, for instance, in King Tut's uh, tomb, but especially these mobile thrones 
that were beginning to be used um, primarily in the 18th and 19th dynasty that have a lot of parallels with what show up in the uh, in the book of Exodus um, and, and trying to visualize what exactly the Ark of the Covenant was and its and its purpose. And so, um, just in general terms, I would say Amarna, as well as things um, subsequent to that, have a lot of um, comparative material when we're trying to compare Egyptian uh, royal furniture, Egyptian funerary uh, furniture, uh, to what we have in the book of Exodus describing the tabernacle and particularly the, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but at Amarna itself, uh, again, we have palaces, we have tombs, um, and these would have been the, um, you know, the, the royal palace where these letters would have been, uh, letters would have been received. And so, again, th this is a, a multiple episodes when we, when we dive into things like religion, and we dive into things like, um, you know, comparative material between Egyptology and uh, the Bible, as well as, of course, the, the dating of the Exodus and the conquest and all of that. Uh, we're going to largely skip most of those things and get into... But we didn't have to add on to what After, you just said. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> um, no, only because it reminded me, there's a really good book by Feldman called Diplomacy by Design that actually, as you were talking about the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant this book is, is tremendous. She argues in favor of um, sort of an international style koine um, for the material culture. And so she shows that during this period of international relations, at the exact same time as the Amarna letters, you, we see an international style in terms of furniture, in terms of uh, bowls and cups and goblets and all these other things that, that uh, rises up. And part of that is because there was um, this type of reciprocity between the great kings. And so it's not any, it's not by coincidence, right, that they were mimicking one another because when they wanted something from each other, right, they would send gifts. They would say, hey, I'm sending you this furniture. I'm sending you this gold. I'm sending you this jewelry, right? And this was all part of an international style that would have been well known. And what's really interesting is we see fantastic, or she argues for this, and I think it's really uh, very solid, um, is that whereas we see the kind of the height, you know, the, the, um, kind of the pinnacle of this type of design, you know, from the pharaohs and things like this. And, and there's a number of things in her work about, um, you know, from King Tut's tomb and all of that. But more importantly is the vassal states like Canaan is also trying to copy this style only in a really crappy way, <laughs> right? So they're trying to be part of this, but then man, it's just not working very well for them. So um, it's an interesting one. And I think it has a lot of parallels that whoever is residing in Canaan, right? Um, and I believe it's the Israelites in addition to the Canaanites, right? They're copying this style. They're trying to enter into that international relations dialogue. So, um, which I think is important as we read the letters, because we think about, oh yeah, here are the great kings. They're trading. They're trying to, you know, one up each other. And the, and the vassals, they're just like, hey, please let me be a part of this. And you'll hear that in the language itself. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have the corresponding local texts um, that we can compare to, except for what we have in Amarna when they're writing back to, uh, when they're writing back to the Egyptians. But we can see it in a, a number of different material culture uh, perspectives, and we see it in the pottery. In fact, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, kind of the crummy aspects that they're trying to do. We, when we find late Bronze Age local pottery, we literally call it Canaanite crappyware, uh, because they're <laughs> trying to... Um, they're, they're, they're trying to be like, uh, what they can get from the Egyptians and what they can get from, uh, Cyprus. And all of that is, is largely being driven 
by this, um, you know, th- this, this, this established economy that is made by these great kings, chief among them is the, um, is the Egyptians. Um, and one of my favorite finds um, for this is, is um, the Ulubarun shipwreck off of the coast ah, of Turkey. I'm so glad you brought that up. Which has all of these different cultures that you would want to find, uh, whether we're talking about Greece or we're talking about Egypt or Hatti or Cyprus especially, or Canaan. And each one has their distinctive um, you know, product that is available, whether it be hippopotamus ivories or wax tablets or uh, wine and oil from Canaan. Um, and so it's, a, it's literally like a, a time capsule for us to, uh, to understand and see these really distinct cultural elements that would have gone with each one of these great kings, but also uh, the vassals that they would have been in charge of. And what's interesting and what Mary was really alluding to is not only do we see this distinctiveness, but we see within this distinctiveness um, the emulation between the vassals to the great kings, uh, particularly Egypt, that shows and speaks to this wider culture, shared koine, if we will, of, of uh, how they're actually operating, which is interesting also in hindsight because it all really comes to a massive collapse at the beginning of the 12th century, sometime around 1185 or 1177. Um, but we, sit, we see it for this, for this, uh, for this period, uh, of which the Amarna letters are certainly a part of. Yeah, and Ulubarun is totally contemporaneous. So if we think about just getting super specific on the dates, um, the Amarna letters are, what, 1360 to 1320 or 13. 13- 10, something like that. Well, the Varun is 1320. Yeah. I mean, they, they even push it. I mean, I I think there's some debate because it could be a little bit into the 13th century. Um, but the difference in the remains between, um, 14th and 13th century, particularly in the later part of the 14th century is, is hard to distinguish. I mean, so you have, uh, all kinds of, and we know in, in, for, for, uh, people who have listened to the Bernard, um, tell Bernard discussion, we have a lot of correspondence also with Ulubarun because we have tons and tons of, of uh, Cypriot stuff, including some of the massive uh, pitoy that were produced in Cyprus that were brought to Borna for some reason. Yeah, those things are huge. It's, it's crazy. It's insane. It's like carrying, <laughs> you know, a quarter of your car. I never um, understood that. I'm like, who, how are they? Anyway, that's, yeah. Okay, sorry. Good. Yeah, Sorry. so they're, they're definitely contemporaneous. I mean, you know, plus or minus as it always is, it's, you know, a few decades here or there. But, but anyway, um, let's, let's talk about the, the letters themselves. What do these letters actually say, Mary? All right, so um, I have pulled four letters, but there are hundreds. And so you can definitely, and then it, there's a, there, a lot of these are online. A really good um, work from the 1990s by Mar- Dr. Moran, or Moran is, um, there's a number, it was pretty widely available and you can get the translations there as well. Um, and so it, these it, are fairly well published and well known. Um, but I pulled four. I have two from great Kings to great Kings. We're going to start with those. And then I have two from vassals to great Kings. So just, we can, um, you know, compare and contrast and then get into a couple of the kind of, you know, more, more famous discussions from the Amarna letters. So, um, the first one is EA 15. So EA stands for El Amarna, um, number 15. And, um, so this I'll, I'll jump in and, and do it. And then I would love to get your, some, your commentary on it, Chris. To the king of the land of Egypt speak. So says Asher Ubalit, the king of the land of Asher. 
to your house, to your country, to your war territory, and to your army well-being. I have sent you my envoy to visit you and to see your country that my forefathers until now have not sent. I have sent you today one fine chariot, two horses, and a jewel from precious stone, a date-shaped bead from genuine lapis lazuli as a good wish present. I have directed unto you. My envoy, whom I've sent to you only to visit you, do not hold him back. May he visit and leave. Your opinion and the situation of your country may he observe, then may he leave. All right, that's it. Would love to get your commentary on that one, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a few things that are that are really interesting. Um, the first thing I would say, just in general, um, if we think about the Assyrians themselves, um, it's precisely in the um, period that precedes this that we have the, the collapse of the kingdom of Mitanni. And once you have the collapse of the kingdom of Mitanni, which previously was one of these um, great kings who could be considered a, a brother right alongside the Egyptians, we have the Assyrians filling this, uh, filling this vacuum. And uh, it's the same area that we're going to find in later in the Bible where we have uh, Ashur. And just for those of you who uh, may be confused, um, it's, it's actually pretty easy when we come to the Assyrians. The name of their chief city is Ashur, the name of their country is Ashur, and the name of their uh, chief deity is Ashur. So you can be assured that you can uh, use all three for that. Um, another interesting thing that we can uh, gain from this in terms of uh, geography is that oftentimes, even though it doesn't use it here, where the Egyptians um, are often going to meet a lot of um, opposition um, with some of the great kings formerly with Mitanni, is the region um, that, we, that we associate with uh, Upper Mesopotamia. Now, the, the Hebrew for that is uh, Naharim, you know, the, the, the region of the, the two rivers. And that actually comes from the, it seems to come from the, the shared Egyptian term, where they talk about this area as Naharim. And even though in Hebrew we often have this translated to Mesopotamia, which we understand primarily as um, the entirety of the uh, river plain of the Tigris and the Euphrates, which would be modern, um, eastern modern part of Turkey all the way to Iraq today, to the, to the Persian Gulf, almost always when, the, when the, the Old Testament talks about the Naharim, which we, again is translated as Mesopotamia, it's talking about the upper Mesopotamia between uh, not necessarily just the Tigris and the Euphrates, but the area of several other rivers uh, along the bend, the great bend of the Euphrates. And so just in terms of the larger geographical background, there's a lot that has um, in the background to how do you get to the point where you have this brother-to-brother -brother great king relationship between New Kingdom Egypt and the Assyrians that uh, we, can, we can really trace through the Amarna letters, but also from Assyrian letters that exist and correspondence from this period and the Egyptians themselves. And it, that in itself is really interesting. Um, the other part that I would say is, is, uh, is, is really uh, fun is that you can talk about the, the trade of these different items, chariots and horses, uh, things that are going to appear later that we could see in the, in the biblical text, such as with uh, King Solomon in, uh, in the book of 1 Kings, 
uh, we read in, in 1 Kings uh, 1 Kings 9 and, and other places, um, I believe it's in 1 Kings, uh, I think it's 9 and 10, the, the trade of, of horses, and it's precisely in this vicinity that we have it. And so um, what we have in the late Bronze Age slash New Kingdom Egypt with all these different empires is an extremely well-developed um, maritime as well as overland network of trade that we actually know better than we do in the in the at least the earlier part of the Iron Age that gets resumed and we know uh, pretty well in the latter part of the Iron Age which deal with all of these main products that are mentioned in this uh, mentioned in this text. Yeah, only one thing. I thank you for that. Um, only one thing to add to this is I um, I think the reason why I picked this one is um, he's really asking Egypt not to keep his envoy in there. So if we think about the overland journey from Ashur to Egypt, it would have taken many months, right? Anywhere, you know, probably around six months for them to make that journey. And they have a lot of, um, do you think an envoy along with an entourage sets out from Ashur? They are kind of the, the object of brigands along the way who are trying to get at their lapis lazuli and all of those things. Um, so they're usually well fortified. Once they get into Egypt, they're very much at the uh, sort of um, the mercy of the Egyptian pharaoh. And so if the Egyptian pharaoh doesn't like what was sent, is upset about something else, right, they would hold the envoy as sort of repayment for this. And so um, the, the king of Ashur is saying, hey, please let him go. You know, um, it's, you know, don't just let him come back. Just let him drop the stuff and come back. So he's asking for that in the letter. And you think that that envoy would have carried this letter or this tablet with him that whole six months only to be read then. I wish things really funny. Um, the other knowing that it's a bit of a death wish, right? So um, the other thing I think is interesting is when they get to the court, um, we know from other letters that there was a, there was very much a, a ceremony that needed to be followed, right? Because the envoys are coming to essentially a deity, right? The Egyptian pharaoh, um, they would enter the court. And, and we know from other letters, although, you know, it's not clear in every one, but that they would actually prostrate themselves seven times on their front and on their back. Um, maybe in modern Hebrew, that'd be like Bet and Gav or something, although that's something different meaning. But um, anyway, they, they uh, would prostrate themselves seven times on their stomach, seven times on their back um, before reading, you know, reading the letter. And so really showing a lot of deference uh, coming into the court and hoping, man, please let me go. I don't want to, I want to go back to my family. So I also think the other th uh, thing here is around chariots. And so I think Chris and I are going to talk right uh about the peace treaty that occurs after the battle of Kadesh in the 1200s um and so we see the chariot the kind of the technology around chariots is being shared more broadly and that these will feature very prominently in sort of the warfare in the 1200s so it's kind of interesting to see that precursor here yeah i, I would just add one other um one other thing I, I think one of the things that's helpful to think about um just as a is a bigger idea in the Bronze and Iron Age, is to think about the the idea of first among equals. Um, for city states, we can talk about it, and for uh, uh, for empires, we can talk about it. So there's no real doubt that um, New Kingdom Egypt was the first among equals. Its uh, its great um, enemy or its its rival, uh, as we've as we've alluded to, is Mitanni before it falls apart, and that. Vacuum, even though it's taken up by um, the Middle Assyrian Empire, it 
really falls to the Hittites, the, uh, the Hittites of the late Bronze Age, to become that big rival, and they have this standoff, which uh, we'll talk about with, with, with Ramses and uh, the Battle of, 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 of Kadesh. Um, but just thinking about the, the term first among equals is, is really important because it applies to a lot of different um, Old Testament uh, political realities. We can talk about this in the context of, of going back to even Solomon and David's reign. Um, we, it's often misidentified as a, as a kind of empire, but what's really happening there is a comparison between uh, smaller nation states and then one emerging as the first among equals. Um, that's the way I would interpret it. And we have uh, examples of this outside of the Bible, such as during the, the days of Hazael of Aram Damascus, where he's able to uh, string together a series of, of victories um, that enable him to become the first among equals among these different nation states. Uh, the real strange thing in, in, in the New Kingdom, um, or in the late Bronze Age, is that you, you have it on the empire level, um, where you have, again, Egypt, as well as the Hittites and so on, that are, that are vying for uh, supremacy at times, but also living, uh, living together. Um, and so, I, in any case, I, I think that just as a, as a political um, thinking, first among equals, uh, is, is just a, an important principle to have when we approach a lot of the uh, historical background uh, elements, regardless of when we're talking about, if we're talking about late Bronze Age through Iron Age, when, when in some instances, when there's times where the empire is completely in control, such as Canaan with the Egyptians, uh, or later on in the, in the later Iron Age, when the Assyrians are completely in control, and they have really no um, uh, equal to compare them to as they conquer and eventually conquer Egypt. Um, but anyway, that's, that, that was a, a, a larger political point. No, it's, it's, it's so helpful. And there's so much. And I think even the fact that we've just talked for like, I don't know, an hour post one letter indicates just how much we learn from these letters about everything, you know, every aspect of culture. So let me jump to the next one. And I wanted to clarify one thing. I think I said before that these letters that are written between the great Kings are written in Akkadian. It's a form of Babylonian, not Neo-Babylonian. I'm not even sure why I said that, but Akkadian. So just there, there we go. Um, okay. So the second letter is EA three, um, again, great King to great King, this time from the King of Babylon to the King of Egypt or the Pharaoh. Um, and this one I really like. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Let me start. Kadash ben Enlil of Babylon to Amenhotep of Egypt. How is it possible that having written to you in order to ask for the hand of your daughter, oh my brother, you should have written me using such language, telling me that you would not give her to me as since earliest time, no daughter of the king of Egypt has ever been given in marriage. Why are you telling me such things? You are the king. You may do as you wish. If you wanted to give me your daughter in marriage, you could, who could tell you no? But you, keeping to your principle of not sending anyone, have not sent me a wife. Have you not been looking for a fraternal and amicable relationship when you suggested to me in writing a marriage in order to make us become closer? Why hasn't my brother sent me a wife? Is it possible for you not to send me a wife? And how could I refuse you a wife and not send her to you as you did? I have daughters. I will not refuse you in any way concerning this. As to the gold about which I wrote to you, send me now quickly during the summer before your messenger reach, reaches me gold in abundance, as much as is available. Even if you sent me 3000 talents of gold, I would not accept them. I would return them and would not give you my daughter in marriage. Commentary, Chris, commentary. Oh, it's, it's just great. I mean, you know, what's, what's good about this is you can see also like 
you can see this done on the the empire level between the great kings here with the, the Babylonians and, and the Egyptians, but it applies similarly to how we would read something like in Genesis with uh, with with Laban and Jacob. I mean, it's this this negotiation happening um, in marriage that is always associated between uh, yes the uh, the beauty of the woman and, you know, some aspect of the romantic relationship like we have in the Bible with Rachel and Jacob, but that's secondary or tertiary to uh, the economics of what's actually happening. And more also, what does it say about who is marrying who and what exactly are, is the marriage contract looking like in terms of the, the dowry and the bride price? And once more, we can use this to compare to, again, Solomon, where we have this relationship between Solomon and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and so it's these same elements. And, and going back to, you talked about earlier about the, the Ramesside Treaty, uh, I believe in the aftermath of that, there were, uh, there was actually a, um, they, they, there was, there was a daughter of Pharaoh who uh, asked someone to come and, and, uh, and, and marry her. Um, and he dies along the way. I mean, so this was a very much a, <laughs> um, not only a, these negotiations happening, um, to, to, we get to the, uh, to, to, you know, what, what exactly people wanted out of it, but to actually make these long distance, uh, relationships literally, uh, finally culminate, uh, with their marriage, uh, was, was often also quite dangerous. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting one. So the, the concept of a bride as a peace treaty, um, is, is one that goes, it finds its origin really in the middle bronze age. Um, so under the, the Amorite dynasties in Northern Mesopotamia and Northern Levant and down in Southern Levant, we see the beginnings of this where, uh, brides ensure the, the peaceful kind of treaty between two great Kings. And so we see Zimri Lim's wife, um, likely came from a neighboring Amorite dynasty and she's given in marriage to ensure a, you know, kind of peaceful relationship between the two, the two, um, territories. So this, this kind of bride is peace treaty concept comes into the late bronze age and it, 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 it doesn't ensure, um, peaceful relationship, uh, between two territories for very long. It actually only lasts the life of, and sometimes not even that, the life of the king. And so you're, the, this is why it's so important. It's a very personal thing. So the king of Babylon, um, Kadash Menenlil, is actually saying, I want in my lifetime a relationship, a peaceful relationship with you, um, Amenhotep. And so the, the price of that is a bride. Um, what is um, and then otherwise it's almost like a declaration of war when you're saying, no, I'm not going to do it. Then you're saying, no, we're not at peace. And that's why it's really, really vital. The other thing that's so interesting here is that, um, every other nation we see in the letters that they're sending brides to different nations, right? Egypt historically, because they're the first among equals, won't do it. So they they classically say, "No, I'm not going to send because we're we're better than you." And this is how they sort of say, "You can come to us for peace, but we don't have to go to you for peace. We don't have to stoop to that." So that's again the bride as peace treaty, them setting themselves up as first among equals. Um, interestingly enough, as the new kingdom Egypt sort of dissipates, it gets weaker following the influx, you know, influx of the sea peoples and things like that. There's some debate 
as to whether um, the, the Egyptians actually send a bride to Hati. It's not totally clear, but it seems like they're kind of like, oh, we're not doing so hot now. And we actually need need as the kind of the sea peoples are starting to, to battle their coastlines and things like that. But it's not totally clear. The. The other thing is just if we put ourselves in the in the shoes of the bride, um, she would have been, and in, in some cases, um, princes as well. So you mentioned that, Chris. We do see other examples where princes are, are traded from site to site. But she would have been raised knowing that as a royal daughter, she could very well spend the rest of her life in a different um, country because she'd never go back. So we see a bride from Hati being traded to Egypt. Um, she probably would have learned Egyptian. She probably would have had an Egyptian tutor. So she was prepared to do this when when she went, there would have been an entourage of kind of ladies in waiting, if you want. I mean, it's a bit anachronistic, but sort of ladies in waiting that would have gone with her servants. They too would have had to learn the language. And all of this entourage of, I think there's there's one about the Hati, uh, regarding Hati, and I think there's over 300 people that go um, in this trade. They would never see their home country again or homeland, right? So they are traded and it's they're done. They're gone. Their name is changed to Egyptian. They'll never see their family again. And so um, I think now today we have Skype and Zoom and all this, or Skype. Oh my goodness! Wow, I'm dating myself. But Zoom and other things like that that don't date to the early 2000s. Um, no, that uh, we we don't think about it. But in this case, they would have completely given up their previous identity and and taken on a new identity. So. Yeah, I think that's that's really fascinating. And, you know, you mentioned the possibility of being anachronistic. Um, it is when you talk about like medieval Europe and that type of thing. But it's actually really striking when you just compare the functional aspects of how these uh, countries would have would have worked. And, you know, these these long distant uh, marriages, um, if we again, if we can do something like medieval Europe, where you're marrying into different uh, different families, it's really actually quite similar. And I think one of the, the, the really interesting things that emerges from that um, is, yes, there's a, a disconnect in culture, there's a disconnect in language, um, but, but one of the things we might assume um, is, is different uh, is, is the, the aspect of religion. Um, and I, I think, uh, again, if, if, you, if you're talking about if you're talking about medieval Europe, you, you might have some differences in, within Christianity. Here you're talking about differences of, of pantheon and differences of how a, um, a princess or a prince brought into these family relationships. Again, new language, new family, new religion. Uh, but uh, this gets us back to some of, these, uh, some of these texts. And one of the questions I always have come up in, um, in, in going through something like the uh, Hittite Egyptian treaty is, well, you know, how did they deal with worshiping these other gods? Um, and it's actually really interesting that um, in the different versions of the treaties that we have, they don't really uh, seem to mind that you add on more deities to the stipulations of the of the contract of of the treaty, uh, meaning that yeah, they 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 worship other deities, but that's not necessarily um, exclusive to the existence of these other deities that are out there. Uh, whereas, for, to, to give an example, the Egyptians would call upon the storm god of the Hittites to, to honor his bargain of the treaty, just as the Hittites would call upon Amun-Ra or other Egyptian deities to honor their part of the treaty. And that's, uh, I think, something that is definitely foreign to the way we would think about a treaty. I mean, even just using the example as we're seeing now 
of what's happening in Afghanistan, you know, where there's clearly a, uh, and, and not to say everyone in America is a, is a Christian or anything like that, but there's definitely a disconnect in religion uh, among what you have in Afghanistan, among what you have in the United States, where we would never put those types of, of treaties using this type of language. So that's an, an aspect where you see a lot of similarity in terms of um, different periods of history, but there's also some really interesting uh, and distinctive aspects that are only in the ancient Near East um, that we can compare to. No, so helpful. Um, okay, so we're going to just gradually get, get less and less commentary. We're doing well. We're doing well. That was about half the previous one, so we're doing great. Um, okay, next letter. Uh, this one is great. It's going to be very, very different from the previous two. So this one is EA, Elamarna 320, and this is from a Canaanite vassal to a great king. Um, okay. <clears throat> to the king, my lord, my son, my god, the breath of my life, your slave and dust under your feet. At the feet of the king, my lord, my son, my god, the breath of my life, I bow down seven times, seven times. I heard the word, words of the tablets of the king, my lord, my son, my god, the breath of my life, and the heat of your slave and the dust under the feet of the king, my lord, my son, my god, the breath of my life is exceeding exceedingly glad that the breath of the king, my lord, my son, my god, has gone out to this to his slave and to the dust under his feet. Who is your servant but a dog? And they prostrate themselves before the pharaoh seven times and seven times on both back and belly. Chris, thoughts? <laughs> well, uh, this is what I require when I win my fantasy football league. Uh, I demand that the loser do this have before me. Have you ever done that? Uh, I actually have. I'm the reigning champion uh, in, in my fantasy football league. In, in fact, um, because both of us went to the same uh, undergrad school. There's two of you in the, in the league. Oh, no, we, we, we play with the same guys from college, so... Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, slight, slight alumni league. Shout out to them. Uh, and some of them have even listened to the podcast. But, uh, but, but seriously, um, this is just such a great text because it illustrates um, the seniority, the authority of the Egyptians. And it also compares to how a brother would compare or, or talk to the Egyptian king. It's first among equals. Now we're talking about uh, way down the, the totem pole of hierarchy um, between a king, uh, and even if we, if we talked about it from a, a Hebrew standpoint, this would, both would be Melech. You know, one would be the king of Egypt, the other would be a, a king of the, of the city-state of Canaan. Uh, like you could look at a text like Joshua 12, which talks, and it uses the same term, um, and yet they are so far inferior to how they see themselves to the Egyptians, that they have to approach them in, in such a way. Now, I think there are elements of um, this is how you would do this because this is what's required among the Egyptians. There's also a certain amount of sucking up uh, because many times in the um, many times in these these letters, they're asking for something. They're saying, "Look at this bad guy over here. He's breaking your commandments. He's not doing what he's supposed to do." And I am, they may or may not actually be, uh, they may just be saying they are, uh, and they're, they're using this as a kind of way of, of, of saying we're in this right relationship, but they're not. And, and then you get to read the other letter that was <laughs> from the other guy, and he says the same thing uh, about this guy. So that's what makes these really, uh, really fun. So yeah, I, yeah, agreed. Um, I will never do this, even if I participate in your 
uh, fantasy football league. I'm just stating that now in case it's a requirement to join. I just did, I, you know, I just wanted to say that. Um, so one thing I think is really funny is that, so he's saying, okay, I'm the dust under your feet. Okay. And literally the envoy would have been doing just that. So if you think about the envoy getting to the throne room, um, he would have been lying with his face on his stomach, would roll to his back, would roll back to his stomach, would roll back to his back. Right. So he is really the dust under the King's feet. And so this is not just a letter or what's required to put in writing or something like that, that this is a actually what they're doing when they go before the King. Um, I, I was just going to say, I mean, thinking about this concept, I'm, even the idea of enemies as your footstool, which is something we see in Egyptians, something we see in Babylon. I mean, it, it, it's something throughout the ancient Near East. Egyptians would literally have a footstool for their throne with their enemies on it. So they would put their feet on it. You can see uh, with, with King Tutankhamun's, I mean, it, it's everywhere. And so um, this is just a further um, extrapolation of that idea that the dust of your feet uh, is a symbol of subordination. Um, and uh, we have, again, many examples of this. One of the most famous examples of this in outside of Egypt is with Tiglath-Pileser III, where he has his foot on the neck of a, a recently conquered foe. And the same detail appears in the Bible. Joshua does the same thing in, in Joshua chapter 10. He puts his foot on the neck of the foe. We can see the same thing in uh, such passages as Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. You know, heaven is, uh, you know, your throne, the earth is your footstool. Um, where the idea of the footstool symbolizes the uh, the enemies uh, and those who are under your authority, um, and so it's a uh, again it's 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 a way of of you see that as kind of a static um, picture because you see these in reliefs. Here you're seeing it in a dynamic way. Someone who actually comes before representing the the people that they've um, that they're that they're you know, bringing this letter from, and they're literally having to uh, do this ritualization, this ritual before the king showing their subordination of not only themselves, but the people, uh, which again is just a reminder of uh, the world in which they live in of, of power and place. Yeah. And it's a great, you know, great parallel. So obviously we're seeing this in late bronze age. Um, you brought up the biblical passages from later. We see it in things like the Black Obelisk, right? You mentioned Tiglath Pileser, but you also see it in things like the Black Obelisk, where you have Jehu literally with his face and his beard in the, you know, on the floor, um, prostrating himself. And so this was very much exactly what they would do. It's not just a literary trope, like we somehow need to be nice or something. No, no this is actually a requirement to go before your superior. And the other thing I think is just, and, and you'll be able to speak more to this, is when we think about this Canaanite vassal, you know. Egypt had pretty strong, uh, they, they maintained pretty strong control of the Southern Levant. And so we see sites like Beit Shan, um, where you have from the late Bronze Age, a, an Egyptian settlement on the top of the tell, for those of you who've been, you know, on the top. And there, that's a governor's, an Egyptian governor's um, home or palace, what do you want to call it? And they were controlling the territory pretty tightly. So if you're not sending envoys and, and, and interacting with your overlords, right? Then, then Egypt is going to be there with a garrison of troops ready to go. Um, and they also really needed stuff from the Pharaoh, right? So we see a number of times where the, the, the Canaanites are writing and saying, Hey, and we'll see that in the next letter, like something's happening or we're in this dispute, help me out. Or the Canaanites go up to, you know, they get a few Canaanites get trapped by Ugarit and, and the Egyptian Pharaoh gets involved and he helps them out. Right. So they, they really needed to keep the Pharaoh on their good side. Um, yeah. So this is kind of a matter of life and death in a lot of ways. And I, I think it's a great point. 
And another kind of aspect to this, just in, in terms of how do we deal with this abundance of data and not having it for the 15th and 13th century, um, I'll take one step back and say, for the 15th and the 13th century at different stages, we have these big conquest lists, uh, especially for uh, Tutmose III and, you know, scattered among other places. The, Kar the Karnak Tutmose III list is, is a really big one. Um, so because we have the existence of this written evidence, we say, you know, 15th century, big campaign, puts down all the, the Canaanites. 13th century, you know, big campaigns, puts down all the Canaanites. They're under his submission and under his authority. And because from other... Um, you know, other evidences, it's showing that they're strong. And so because we have now in the 14th century evidence that seems to indicate, well, some of the Canaanite cities did, weren't doing exactly what Pharaoh wanted them to do. Does the 14th century, the Amarna age, does this mean a period of semi-weakness on the part of the Egyptians? Or would we find exactly the same type of correspondence at Memphis or Thebes? Uh, we just don't have it from an archaeological perspective where there's all of these inner discussions happening between Shechem and Megiddo and all the various city-states. Um, and so that just really gets to the question of how do you actually interpret the very incomplete, we're really glad we have it, but the very incomplete part of this, uh, this, this, this data. And everything you said is absolutely right. They relied on Pharaoh. They often acted against what Pharaoh and other city-states want. Uh, and certainly on the part of Pharaoh, it's a huge empire to try and sort out who's who. And, and I'm just thinking from like a scribal perspective, you have to really know all of the inner workings of each one of these houses and their rivals. And these, I mean, just the knowledge that must have had to have existed for the advisors to the throne of, of Pharaoh, how to actually deal with this stuff. It was a very complicated um, it's like a fantasy football league. It, it, a fantasy football. League. It's like Game of Thrones. I mean, it really is. It's it's like it's like there's all of these um, these these realities, um, and unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, we have the Amarna letters to go off of. But it just shows you, even with this abundance of evidence, how little we know uh, compared to what's out there, uh, and all these questions that emerge from these one-sided conversations. Yeah, um, one thing that, to, just to add there, just there are, from the Amarna letters, from people that have kind of studied them in completion, um, there are over 50 sites that are mentioned um, in, the, in the Southern Levant, extending up into the land of Amuru, which is just south of Ugarit, um, and 20 plus, I think it's like 24 or something, um, smaller kings or kind of um, subservient vassal kings are mentioned. So we actually have a lot of players. Um, we have a pretty briefly, there's, there's some good maps that you can see. Um, there's just, it, it litters, the 50 sites litter the landscape all the way from Ugara south. Um, and so into, you know, I think Gaza is the furthest one south. And so that whole territory is just you know, chock full of little kingdoms and their interactions. And so a lot of those letters talk about the inter interaction between those small vessel kings. So, um, okay, cool. One last letter and then we'll be done. Um, so this one is EA 286. And um, this again is from a Canaanite vessel to a great king, a little bit different than the last one. So I wanted to read this one. And, and I think it's good to touch on this, not in too much detail, but it's worthwhile kind of mentioning this because you'll see it in the literature. Okay. To the king, my lord, thus speaks Abduheba, your servant. At the feet of the king, my lord, seven times and seven times I prostrate myself. What have I done to the king, my lord? They blame me before the king, my lord, saying Abduheba has rebelled against the king, my lord. 
While the king, my lord, lives, I will say to the commissioner of the king, my lord, why do you favor the hapiru and are opposed to the rulers? And thus I am accused before the king, my lord, because it is said, lost are the territories of the king, my lord. O king, my lord, there are no garrison troops here. Therefore, the hapiru sack the territories of the king. If there are archers here this year, all the territories of the king will remain intact. But if there are no archers, the territories of the king, my lord, will be lost. To the king, my lord, thus writes Abduheba, your servant. He conveys eloquent words to the king, my lord. All the territories of the king, my lord, are lost. Right, and there, yeah, and there's there's several of these, and of course, Abduheba um, famously is connected with um, with Jerusalem. Uh, we have Abdiheba um, as the so-called king of uh, of Jerusalem during the Amarna period, and there's just I mean there's just so many things that you could you could talk about. His name, you know, itself um, is of a Hurrian goddess, uh, Heba, probably. That's what the the goddess Hebet. And so, what does that mean? What does that say about his background? What does that say about where he's from? His ethnicity. Uh, deities he's worshiping, maybe political political uh, backgrounds here. Um, and one thing I would say is that these these texts have been known. There's there's several of these uh, letters from from Abdi Heba of uh, of Jerusalem with the name spelled uh, just as it is uh, in the Bible. Once you do the uh, once you do the conversion, but um, something like ten years ago, there was the discovery of a uh, cuneiform tablet. It's a small fragment uh, in the area of the Ophel excavations by the recently uh, deceased Elat Mazar um, that was, that seems to base, it's not, it's not the uh, Jerusalem copy of this text, but probably is a kind of correspondence from the late Bronze Age. Um, And so this is one of those instances where we, we may have both sides of the conversation. Unfortunately, uh, this side of the conversation is like three words uh, because it's the corner of the of the fragment, but it's clearly a Bronze Age and it's clearly from the, from the same from the same time period. Um, and if we were to expand this further, we would see that there is a lot of um, historical, geographical, and political dynamics that are uh, related to Abdi Heba. Uh, and Jerusalem, as well as some sites in the vicinity, such as the uh, Canaanite city-state of Kela, Gezer, um, some sites that we don't know exactly where they're located. Uh, there's a city called Rabutu, uh, which may be the same as the city of Rabbah, which is mentioned uh, in uh, Joshua chapter 15, which again, we haven't identified with absolute certainty. Uh, and, and so there's Gezer, there's Lachish, there's Jerusalem, these places that are all mentioned as uh, warring with one another and, and writing back to the king and trying to figure out what exactly uh, they're going to be able to control. And then in the midst of that, you have a reference to uh, the very famous, uh, some would even say infamous reference to the uh, Apiru or Habiru or however you want to uh, pronounce it. And of key, of course, the key element here is is there a relationship between the Apiru and the Hebrews? Now, um, and Mary, I'm sure we'll have several things to say on this. The question is, is, is really twofold. Is there a linguistic relationship between um, the term Hebrew and Apiru? And there's some scholars that still maintain that until today, although I would think most scholars, such as Anson Rainey, say there is no linguistic connection because of different spellings. 
Um, but then the, the bigger question um, and related question is, is there a relationship between the apiru and, as a social phenomenon and the Hebrews, or at least some of the Hebrews, um, that appear in such texts as Exodus, and I would even say all the way down into uh, a book like First Samuel, where you have uh, a strange reference in uh, a passage like First Samuel 13 and 14, where Saul and Jonathan are fighting the Philistines, and the Hebrews are actually fighting with the Philistines. And then they turn uh, away from the Philistines, and they fight with the Israelites. And you're thinking, wait, what? <laughs> Who's Israelite? Is there a, aren't these synonyms? Aren't the Israelites Hebrews and vice versa? And so these types of um, pieces of evidence have caused scholars to really examine this question of, is there some correspondence between the Apiru and the Hebrews? Now, um, one last thing before I hand it over to Mary. Um, in general, when we talk about the Apiru, they appear, uh, if I'm not mistaken, from something like 1800 uh, BC all the way down through the, the late second millennium uh, BC. And particularly in the late Bronze Age, New Kingdom era texts, they seem to be essentially a band of, of mercenaries or outlaws that cause trouble. Um, they're usually uh, used as a kind of um, way of saying that the guy you're talking bad about, so I'm, I'm, I'm Canaanite King X, and I'm talking bad about Canaanite King Y, I say, you know, he's so bad he's going after the Apiru. Um, but they also appear in some early texts, um, uh, such as one in the northern Levant, where we read about a exiled Canaanite king, or on the edge of Canaan, who spends seven years among the Apiru. Uh, and what are exactly those northern... Spoiler, we're going to do another yeah. session mm -hmm. on him, Adrimi, right? Adrimi, yeah, we, right yeah I, I couldn't remember his name. Uh, the, <laughs> but I, I barely remember. got the autobiography <laughs> of Idrimi. Um, and so what do these, what do these refer to? Um, are, are they the Israelites, uh, the Hebrew, are they the same, are they synonyms? Um, it, it's a, it's a really interesting question. That was pretty good. I think we're done. That was great. <laughs> I was just kidding. Um, no, I, there's so much in this letter. I probably should have chosen a different one. So Abihaba, um, obviously King of Jerusalem, we have six letters that are written by, by him. So we know some about that. Um, not sure what his lineage is, which is kind of interesting, right? It's possible that he was like placed on the throne by Melchizedek. <laughs> um, that wasn't funny. Please don't make jokes like that. Um, no. Uh, so, you know, we, we learn a little bit about him. We, he, he writes early on in the letters, um, uh, complaining about the, these Apiru, right. Um, and then kind of by the end, it's getting a little bit better. He seems to make, make a, a treaty with them. Um, I think most people connect the Apiru. Now when the texts were first discovered and first translated, man, it was just a flood of like, these are the Hebrews. This is what it is. And of course it's very I mean, the similarities in the weak consonants and things like that are very, very similar, um, or the one weak consonant. Um, that said, most people now, because of the find from Idrimi, would connect this Apiru group to Idrimi, to this pre-existing sort of mercenary band. Um, then the word itself probably means something like dust, maybe because they're like 
going through the land, kicking up dust with them. Right. And so people now connect them there and that they would have been sort of this, this band of brigands. Um, and they, we see them a number of times in the Amarna texts, um, kind of being like the troublers of the Canaanite Kings. Um, so they're, they're causing problems and, and, um, and this Abdiheva is like, look, if you send me a garrison of troops, I can help you out. But otherwise, like it's up to you. I mean, I can't, I can't defend them. So they must've had quite a bit of power that they were really threatening these small vassals. One thing I think it's worth noting is that when the Canaanite vassals themselves write about themselves, they don't affiliate themselves with other Canaanite groups. They consider themselves independent vassals, right? They are fighting with each other. They have their own sort of ethno you know, ethnicity that they would, you know, and their own sort of uh, definition, that kind of thing. But, um, when other groups talk about these vassals, they will, can, can use the term Canaanite. Um, and so this is where we actually get, we have 11 mentions of the term Canaanite, um, in the Amarna letters, um, written from other groups. Like there's a, you know, there's some written from Babylon and Ugarit and, and, you know, Egypt and things like this. Um, and they kind of refer to the Southern Levant as like the area of the Canaanites, um, meaning all of these guys, we don't consider them independent. We're, they're, we're just lumping them in together um, into kind of a single, right? So it might be how, I mean, I don't know, I'm drug parallel, but I don't consider myself a Texan. I consider myself a Californian and thank goodness. Wow. But um, I'm just kidding. But, if <laughs> but I, I consider you know, myself an American. <laughs> But if I travel internationally, people are like, oh, you're American. Yeah. So, but I consider myself a Californian. So, um, I mean, that's a little bit strong, but I definitely am not a Texan. That's, that's all I want to say to that. Um, but that's, that's the parallel. And so, um, when we think about, uh, you know, we think about the Canaanites, when we think, you know, think about that term, it's not a homogenous culture that existed. It's actually a conglomeration of very different warring city-states that didn't really like each other so much, and they were considered Canaanites. And they were Canaanites just because they lived in the land of Canaan. So they lived in that territory, and so they were kind of, yeah, you're a Canaanite because you live there, right? Um, so just that I think those are kind of some helpful, uh, you know, addendums to kind of how we read the text and how the writers of the text are thinking about themselves. Yeah, I think, I think there's some really good points. And just to add um, just some biblical geographical elements to this. I mean, if we put Abdiheba in the 14th century, the logical way of like corresponding him to early biblical texts, whether it's, we don't think that he's a biblical character, but it, it can be compared to Adonai Zedek or in the book, which is in the book of Joshua or Adonai Bezek and whether or not those two are, are the same person or, or related figures in the book of Judges. Um, that, that's you know, kind of the, the, the context and time frame we're talking about. Um, but to your point about, you know, the, the different groups and how they compare themselves and how they self-identify, um, this happens also in the Bible. So it can be the land of the Amorites, uh, like Genesis 15, you know, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It can be the land of Canaan. Um, and yet within the land of Canaan, you have seven groups of which are two of those are Canaanites and Amorites. So you have all of these different, um, different groups, some of which we can uh, identify closer to where they may have been localized, such as the Jebusites around Jerusalem. Um, but you see these different distinctions also made, in this case, by outsiders, by the Israelites talking about the land of Canaan. Uh, and you see it among themselves as they have, you know, these different distinctives based upon 
how they see themselves, but there's a need always to talk about things in the big picture. You know, that you're part of the land of Canaan, or as uh, Mary said, you're an American versus a Californian or a Texan or whatever. Um, and uh, again, all these questions um, help or really help us when we look at the Amarna tablets, because these details are all embedded there. Um, and there's no, um, there's no rule book uh, for geography or for designations that we can have uh, at any given moment in time to, to refer to it. We have to look at original texts from these time frames uh, to understand them. Now, uh, we do have later um, you know, historical texts, like, for instance, Herodotus or Josephus and things like that, where they try to tell us where all these people were from and what's their ancestry and what do they call themselves and so on, where they're doing what we would call history, um, but we don't have that for, and by the way, they're often wrong <laughs> in the way that they say different people are from where. Um, but we, but to actually do the hard work of knowing how they refer to themselves, how outsiders refer to themselves, it can only really be done through these type of texts, which are contemporary with one another. And one plug for a previous episode, which I found to be quite fascinating, is about Beit Milo. If we think about Aviheva, he is probably, I mean, he's ruling out of Jerusalem, which would have probably been the city of David. And he would have probably been using the Beit Milo that we talked about before, which was that megalithic structure over the backfill. Just kidding. No, over the place where you get the water, right? So I, I just, I mean, you know, if you kind of draw those connections, you think about that's what he's ruling over. This isn't like ethereal. This isn't, oh, somewhere. So, you know, like we actually know where he's ruling, what the structure looks like, right? And this structure then gets retrofitted later during the, you know, the kingdom of Egypt, uh, kingdom of Israel, right? So pretty, pretty cool. Great idea. Actually, I, I mean, this is, this is great um, because that wasn't my idea. That was your idea I, I know, in I, your I, article. I'm just, you know. <laughs> coming, in, coming in December. Um, but dun, dun, related dun. to that, related to that, if we think about Jerusalem and the late Bronze Age, we have six letters, as you mentioned, from Abdi Heba, uh, from just the 14th century. We have um, the Amarna letter, it, you know, the, uh, if we want to call it an Amarna letter or whatever, found in Jerusalem itself, um, the fragment. And we have not a single structure from the late Bronze Age in Jerusalem. Um, and it definitely was in the city of David. Um, I know there's a debate about uh, among um, those at Tel Aviv and others, what they call it the mound on the mount theory, and they suggest that uh, Middle Bronze and Late Bronze Age Jerusalem and, and earlier Jerusalem might be located under the Temple Mount. I think it's very problematic theory because, of course, the Gihon Spring is where the Gihon Spring is, which is in the south. But the point is, is that when we think about late Bronze Age Jerusalem, we have universally agreed upon um, historical data from the Amarna tablets, which show that in the 14th century, Jerusalem wasn't just um, a city, it was a city-state kingdom that had some considerable political weight to go up against and, and, and parlay with such city-states as uh, Lachish, Gezer, uh, and even compete over different territory. And yet, in terms of archaeology, there's very, very little that is left of late Bronze Age Jerusalem. Now, we know it's occupied. We know that there's remains in terms of stray pottery, and you can look in the publication report, and you can see, you know, there's a strata um, uh, for late Bronze Age Jerusalem. But you're not visiting the city of Abdiheba, 
there's no uh, model that you can visit of Abdiheba city like you could for Hezekiah city or Josiah city or Herod city or Hadrian city. It just doesn't exist because we have no means of recapturing that. And so um, there's a, a good article um, written recently in a book that I helped edit um, called Jerusalem in the Late Bronze Age, The Glass Half Full by Joe Ziel, friend of mine and great archaeologist in Jerusalem, who basically makes this point, and this is precisely the point that someone like Ami Mazar of Hebrew University makes about 10th century Jerusalem, that we don't have um, the, 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 the buildings that we would want, um, but we still have lots of material and lots of corresponding evidence, uh, and the Bible would be included in that, that shows that Jerusalem at this time is the logical uh, center of a polity in the southern highlands um, that we would associate with the emergence of the kingdom of Israel. And so this is just a way of comparing something that we have in the late Bronze Age, which is definitive. I mean, everyone has to essentially agree upon it because these six letters exist and in um, what we see in the Bible. Um, and so I, I think it's it's a way that's um, that, that's done legitimately and something that really needs to be taken to and taken into account. Yeah, and I think that there's a tremendous corollaries for the the continued use of Middle Bronze Age structures into the Late Bronze Age. We just see it everywhere because the structures were so friggin' huge, right? Which is of course the large stepstone structure and all of that in the city of David. But they get used into the Late Bronze Age. The the division between Middle Bronze Age and Late Bronze Age is not one of dramatic change in the material culture. It's a political one. And so I think that that's good to keep in, in, in your mind as well. Just as you think about, you know, the Beit Milo, it would have still been in use through this period and they would have been using the one that had been built in the middle bronze age. So, I mean, yeah, I'm in agreement. Um, I think you wrote that in a paper that's forthcoming in December drum roll. Yes. Okay, good. I think this is a pretty good review. Uh, we did well. Um, this is part of our series called, we're not sure of the name, but great texts of ancient Near East. We'll come up with something. We'll come up. Um, our next one, we're not sure. Maybe we're going to turn to Adrini or I don't know, but if you guys have any thoughts, any texts you want us to cover, put it in the, the we're chat. taking requests. Yeah. <laughs> don't all flood the <laughs> chat at once. Yes. Excellent. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Chris, for connecting on this one. It's fun. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>